Greetings, and welcome to the SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our seventh consecutive semester brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are bringing you this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, a few announcements. Please look for our new colloquia presentations on the SLIS webpage throughout the term. You will also find there a webcast archive of all of our previous seven semesters of presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliswb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through the RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also watch the SLIS colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website detailing the social networking opportunities the school offers for you to virtually connect with uh, SLIS students. It's on our, it's, um, our own social networking wiki site. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offers a way to share and learn about the rapidly changing resources you'll want to know about. I also might remind you that we maintain a, dyna a dynamic homepage that should become something else you check regularly for school updates, resources, and news. Those comments are for our SLIS students, but for everyone else in the SLIS community, I'd like to call your attention to the school's receptions this fall at several of our professional conferences. Our ARMA reception will be hosted by Dr. Pat Franks in Orlando, Florida in mid-October. Also in mid-October, Dr. Ken Haycock and the faculty will be hosting a SLIS reception at the annual Internet Librarian Conference in Monterey, California. And at the end of October, Dr. Haycock and the faculty will be hosting our annual reception at the California Library Association in Pasadena. All the details and RSVPs are available on our school's webpage, and we hope that, uh, that you will attend these professional conferences and take the opportunity to become better acquainted with the faculty, as well as meet up with classmates, friends, and colleagues. We hope you enjoy the colloquia presentations, and thank you for helping to make the series a success. Ken Heacock is currently professor and director of the School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. And uh, prior to joining the faculty at San Jose State, he served as professor and director of the School of Library, Archival, and Information Studies at the University of British Columbia. Former president of national and international professional associations, Ken is, president of, uh, is past president of the Association for Library and Information Science Education, ELISE. He has received research and service awards from the American and Canadian Library Associations. Ken's most recent publications include the portable MLIS, Insights from the Experts, published by Libraries Unlimited in 2008 with Dr. Brooke Sheldon. It all, um, his publications also include a forthcoming book with Wendy Newman entitled Creating a Common Agenda, Getting Libraries on the Political Radar Screen Locally, Regionally, and Nationally, to be published in 2010 by Libraries Unlimited. Um, over the past four years, Dr. Haycock has been the spearhead for a great deal of strategic and operational reform here at SLIS. He's introduced a unique executive MLIS stream at SLIS. He inaugurated our current culminating experience, the portfolio assessment of our, for our master's degree. And most exciting from my point of view is he successfully initiated uh, SLIS's Gateway PhD program in partnership with Queen Queensland University of Technology in Australia. Please join me and the rest of the faculty in welcoming back for his fourth colloquia presentation. Today's talk is entitled Advocacy, Building Influence for Change, Dr. Ken Haycock. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here, especially talking about this particular topic. Advocacy has been of interest to me for a long time. I actually wrote my first book on advocacy in 1992. I won't give you the title because it's out of print and I wouldn't benefit from your knowing anyway, but uh, it was called Program Advocacy. Uh, it was published by Libraries Unlimited. And, uh, 
along with others, uh, felt that advocacy was important to advance uh, libraries and uh, librarians and library workers in order to provide service to communities. However, it wasn't really until I became an elected politician um, locally, as first a school board trustee and then a school board president and then as a city councillor that I really uh, found that uh, building influence was a critical part of um, getting support, whether we're looking at revenue, uh, political support, policy support, whatever, so that advocacy becomes um, critically important to us. And I think what we're looking for is making sure that we actually have a knowledge base and that this isn't uh, what happens to us. Unfortunately, we tend to look at advocacy as a single-shot event like lobbying, and it doesn't quite uh, work that way. Uh, it's a bit like what Joan Rivers once said about housework. You know, you just get the beds made, you get the dishes done and six months later you have to do it all over again. And I think that the same thing is true of advocacy, that it's really just got to become a part of our lives. And of course, um, influence is a critical part of that. One of the problems that we have, uh, in my view, is that libraries suffer from what I would call the curse of high public satisfaction. In other words, nobody complains about us. Nobody complains to say that the playing field hasn't been mowed. Nobody um, complains that um, uh, we need a new lighting on the playing fields. Nobody complains that the community center was too dirty last week and more money needs to be uh, given to it. We pride ourselves on having high public satisfaction the same way as the police and fire do, but unlike police and fire, we aren't rewarded for bad performance. If you think about it, the police, when crime goes up, actually get more police officers. Well, when uh, circulation goes down, we don't get more staff. You know, and I think that what happens is that studies tell us that the public really has low expectations for service. And as a consequence, our performance becomes very challenging to leverage as a means of gaining um, support. So high satisfaction, low expectations is a real problem for us. Well, what do we know about our situation? From the recent um, OCLC reports, we do know that we have support in the community. This again is the high public satisfaction. But that support is not commitment. It's not commitment to funding. It's not commitment to support. We know that people don't really know very much about us. and We've heard that uh, for decades. We also know that support is only marginally related to use. What does that mean? Well, we know that a number of studies are telling us in large urban public libraries that the strongest supporters of public libraries, counterintuitively, are people who never use them. The strongest donors to public libraries are people who don't have library cards. Now this is contrary to our usual view, <clears throat> excuse me, but unfortunately we do focus on users uh, to generate support when in fact non-users aren't by their very nature not supporters of libraries. And we also know that the perceptions of the librarian and library staff are very important to support. People who are seen as passionate about their work, who are involved in their community, tend to generate more support than those who aren't. We also know that we're seen as a provider of practical answers and information and there are a lot of other people and services in that space and we may need to reposition ourselves. We also know that there's a belief that the library is a transformational force and can actually make a difference in lives and that leads to support. Studies are beginning to tell us as well that because a particular service like a public library or an academic library or a school library gets support doesn't necessarily mean that the funding has to come from somebody else. We also know that elected officials are very supportive. Unfortunately, we stop there and think if we have a meeting with somebody and they say nice things to us that something's going to happen. And of course, it often doesn't. Being supportive is quite different from being committed and of course from being an advocate. And we also know that there are different levels of supporters. The OCLC study calls them super supporters and probable supporters. And most people would uh, label them perhaps active supporters, passive supporters, and then passive resistors and active resistors. And we really need to engage the people who are strong supporters and potential supporters as a group more than perhaps we do. Unfortunately, library leaders 
aren't perceived as being helpful to this um, uh, presently. So what do we mean by advocacy? I would suggest that we confuse these terms. Public relations uh, means that we get exposure uh, in the media and through other venues for those things that are of interest uh, to the public. Uh, publicity is getting our message out, but those two things are really all about us. Here's who we are, here's when we're open, here's what we have to offer, here are our services, and if you had any smarts at all, you would take advantage of these things. So it's all about us. Marketing, on the other hand, is all about the users. Who are our users? Uh, what are their needs and interests? Uh, what is going to make them, uh, motivate them to take advantage of what we have to offer? And of course, our users aren't homogeneous. Uh, the needs of senior citizens may be quite different uh, from the needs of a hormonally imbalanced 14-year-old, for example. So who are our users? What are their needs and interests? And how can we adjust our resources and services to better meet those needs and interests? So marketing, I would suggest, is closest to advocacy because advocacy really is marketing an issue, and I'll come back to that. But we really are also looking at influence. And of course, influence is the act of producing an effect when we don't have any power. So it's without any apparent exertion of force um, or control to get the effect that we're looking for. And of course, within our own work, we have spheres of influence that may be direct influence on decisions that are made to affect, that affect us, indirect influence by working with people who may affect others. And then, of course, we all have a zone where we have no influence, and that's where we find um, it very uh, frustrating uh, to move forward. But advocacy, on the other hand, I would suggest is a planned, deliberate, sustained effort to develop understanding and support incrementally over time. Um, it is not lobbying. Uh, lobbying tends to be an event, legislative days for example, tends to be around uh, working with elected officials only. Advocacy is a planned, there's planning involved, deliberate, we have to make a decision to um, actually undertake this, and I'll come back to that as to why we don't seem to do that, sustained over time, effort, it takes work, so a planned, deliberate, sustained effort to develop understanding and support. It's hard to get support when you don't have understanding to start with. Understanding and support incrementally over time. Well, what do we know about advocacy? Well, we know that it's all about respect. Um, I was always surprised when the, I was the president of the school board, we'd have these ongoing budget public meetings that uh, would last for months, it seemed, week after week, and people would come out and they would insult us, they would tell us we were stupid, that they didn't know who possibly could have voted for us, we obviously hate kids, we don't understand schools and the needs of communities, and by the way, we want more money for our special project. You think, what is wrong with this picture? You spend this time insulting us, and then you want something in return? And yet that tends to be the approach that a number of people use. But advocacy is about respect. You have to respect the people who have the power, who have the money, if for no other reason than they're the ones who are going to make decisions. We also know that it's incremental. It's building relationships over time. So, to state the obvious, people do things for their reasons, not ours. And it's important that we understand why they're choosing to make the decisions that they do. They do things for their reasons, not ours. We also know that advocacy is about deposits and withdrawals. It's like banking. Uh, and too often we're at the teller's wicket to make a withdrawal and we've never made a deposit. Well, what do I mean by that? We go and speak to legislators only when we want something. There's going to be a cut, there's going to be a reduction in the budget, or we need more money for a special service. But we aren't there just talking about the things that we do that make a difference to their constituents. That's a deposit. That's building understanding so that when you need support, there's a better understanding of it at the table. I think we're moving now, in terms of effective influence and advocacy, to saying that we need to move beyond advocacy and be players um, at the table. Uh, in a nutshell, it means that too often advocates talk library, 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 and players talk literacy, academic achievement, economic development, social cohesion, and here are the ways that the library can contribute to those issues that we all share. So being a player at the table becomes very important. 
And these things are critical in terms of making an effort, that planned, deliberate, sustained effort to develop understanding and support over time. It's once said that the meek uh, may indeed inherit the earth, uh, but I can assure you the news of it will never get out. And I think that we need to make sure that we're really looking at a, an active role here in what we're doing. Well, that means we need to focus and we need to plan. And I'll get to the research on these areas in just a moment. Um, focus, some people suggest, is an acronym in this context for being flexible, uh, very important, about being flexible about outcomes, uh, making sure that what we do is observable and the actions we want in return are observable. It means being courageous, those courageous conversations. Most fundraising efforts fail because people forget to make the ask, for example. Uh, they're, they're happy to talk about what they do and why it's important and why it's, it should be supported, uh, but they don't tend to make the ask, um, and that's always a problem. It should be useful, uh, our focus, and it should be supportive of those with whom we're working. So the whole notion of connecting agendas, uh, if you will. Influence, then, rests in three um, prime areas. The first is building relationships, and that's the importance of networks, and making sure that we uh, maintain and build networks over time so we do have contacts, not because we're looking to gain something specifically from people, but because it may be useful at some point in the future for them and for you, and it's an enjoyable relationship. Probably my best example of uh, building relationships happened uh, just last May. I was in another um, a state. Um, I was giving a presentation at a conference. I was standing in the lobby of a hotel uh, talking to some people in the corner. The elevator opened and an entourage of people got off and I thought, oh, I think I recognize that woman who's leading them, but I couldn't for the life of me remember who she was. I thought she, maybe she was on television or something. Anyway, they walked out, there were about 30 of them, and the person who was leading them got near the front of the door, stopped, turned around, looked directly at me, walked over and she said, Ken, I haven't seen you in ages. Now she was running for governor and we used to be school board presidents together years ago and we'd actually stayed in touch when she was elected leader of the party. I'd sent her a card and so on and we had a little chat there and I said, you know, how's it going? Uh, what are the odds? Uh, I said, I, I heard that, uh, you know, this may be your last campaign if you lose this one. She said, oh, I know, and they're bringing out all the dirt. You know the other side. She said, but of course, I keep forgetting you are on the other side, aren't you? And I said, well, Carol, I hope that you get elected, but remember, public education, public libraries, public health, these are the things that are important to this community. She said, I know, I know the message, and uh, we're committed to it. And she stood and chatted for about 10 minutes while the other people waited out on the sidewalk and moved on. Well, that was a connection that was from years ago and just uh, makes a difference. And if I lived in that area, I know that we would uh, stay in touch. We know that there are three power groups in any community, and we ignore them at our peril. The first are the elected politicians. Uh, those can be council members, they can be school board members, um, they can be people who are in the legislature. The second is the business community, which we don't give enough attention to, uh, unfortunately. And the third, of course, is the press. And each of those three areas require a strong relationship uh, for coverage. The second area is our approach. And I'll talk about what is common and what the research suggests we should be doing in a minute. The third is context, the whole notion that um, if we're looking to build influence with an individual, we need to know something about the individual. We need to know the context of the organization. Is this the right time for um, asking for something? Uh, it's interesting to me that you know, at a time when everyone is looking for um, reductions, a uh, time of fiscal restraint, um, you can't be the one who is standing out in front saying, give me more, give me more, give me more. I mean, it's a little bit like your father being laid off and there's five children and one of the kids says, well, cut the allowance of the other four, but not mine. I mean, it makes no sense, right? So timing is really important for issues as well. And we also need to analyze what those issues are. Um, what are the arguments for and against what we're looking for? And we should determine them so we can address them at the outset. Um, what are the costs and benefits to the other party if they agree to this? What does it cost them in time? What does it cost them in political support? What does it cost them financially? And what are the benefits if they um, sign on? 
What are the vested interests um, as well and their needs um, in the community or in your institution when you're looking at change? And what's happened elsewhere? Are there examples of uh, where what you're looking for has actually occurred? What was the result? Uh, will that particular example have um, any resonance with the people you're working with? And are there any bench works we can look at? One of the critical pieces in building relationships, of course, is the whole notion of um, trust. It's often been said that um, if a council or a group of elected officials trust you, you're more likely to get money than if they don't. Well, to trust you, they have to know you, right? Um, and so the whole uh, question of trust becomes very important. And trust really is built on character. Um, advocacy and building influence has a strong um, ethical base. It's, being ba uh, it's based on your being seen as competent in your job, Nobody is going to give money or make changes for somebody they see as being incompetent. Um, we also know that one of the key characteristics of uh, leaders and people who build influence is that they are self-confident. It's probably the most common thing that comes out of the literature, self-efficacy and self-confidence um, in uh, people who are trusted um, and supported. Uh, credibility, uh, you may be all of these good things with character, competence and uh, uh, self-confidence, but if you're not credible with your colleagues um, and with um, others in the community, uh, then you're not going to uh, be successful. And of course, congruence, the fact that you're going to be consistent, um, that you're aligned with the direction the organization is taking, the community is taking, um, and that you're seen as uh, being that proverbial uh, team player, um, whatever that happens to mean in that uh, particular organization. Well, what approaches do people use to um, advocacy. There have been several studies of what um, approaches business leaders use, and here are the most uh, common approaches for um, gaining influence. The first is ingratiation, making people feel important, making them feel wanted. Um, this isn't necessarily a negative, and it's certainly not um, lacking in genuineness uh, because it has to be authentic. But at least making people feel important and that you value them is a critical piece. Uh, being assertive, in other words, making the demand, making the ask is a, the uh, common approach um, as well used in business. The third is rationality, in other words, explaining the reasons uh, why you want something, why you want the change, why you want funding. Uh, the fourth is sanctions, and that's uh, an administrative means for compliance. In other words, um, uh, we had an example in our school a few years ago where uh, somebody wanted something, uh, the faculty weren't so keen, and the comeback was, do you really want a budget next year? Uh, that's sanctions, right? That's compliance. That's administrative means. Of course, in a political environment, it means we won't vote for you. Uh, that's the sanction. But there has to be some credibility there. I mean, some studies suggest that 99% of professional librarians are Democrats. Well, saying to Republican decision makers not going to vote for you doesn't have much credence because it makes no difference, right? They, they know that information ahead of time. So sanctions um, uh, for compliance uh, are important, but they must have credibility. Then an exchange of benefits. If you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. Um, and uh, that becomes important for influence as well. Another is upward influence, and that is that if you aren't getting anywhere with the person you're dealing with, you go over their head. Uh, or you have somebody who, over your head who uh, deals with them. So out, upward influence is also a means of um, building influence and uh, making uh, change. And uh, it happens in organizations uh, in particular. Um, whether a municipality or a university for that matter. Uh, blocking, um, you know, if you're not going to support me, I'm going to see that you don't achieve your goal. Um, I think we've all had that experience with somebody uh, with whom we've worked. And uh, coalitions um, is the eighth most common, and that's enlisting others. Uh, and in the last 10 years, there's been more attention to um, inspirational appeals. This is appealing to the greater social good, uh, public value, uh, our vision, uh, our mission, um, our contributions to the community. And of course, consultation is also becoming more common. Consultation meaning that uh, we actually engage with others uh, to look at what it is that's important and make adjustments and involve them in the process. The most common uh, then of these is uh, appeal to reason and appeal to inspiration and also consultation. The least common uh, tend to be exchange of benefits, 
coalitions this is in organizations as opposed to politics i'll get to politics in a minute and pressure tactics tactics we don't tend to use blocking we don't tend to use sanctions consciously because you may need that person in the future right and you if you're going to play hardball you have to be prepared for the consequences the least successful of course are controlling and the use of power in gaining influence what does the research say makes a difference for influence there have been a number of studies in this area, and these uh, principles seem to be uh, quite uh, uh, well accepted in the research um, literature about uh, gaining influence and making change. The first is um, reciprocation, and that's when you do a favor for someone, they actually feel obliged to do the favor back for you. Um, there have actually been studies to show that if you submit a report to somebody or a document, and you take the time to put a handwritten note on it on a post-it, they're more likely to follow up with you than if you don't. Little, so we're not talking about large things here, but the whole notion of giving attention and reciprocation is important. I was in um, Washington, D.C. a few years ago with the Illinois delegation um, lobbying um, uh, their uh, senators and members of, uh, other members of Congress. And I thought it quite interesting that the uh, person I was uh, with um, had set up appointments and so on, uh, but she gave to the chiefs of staff, who tend to be the people we saw, although we did meet with one of the senators, um, a children's book that was inscribed uh, saying, and she didn't give it to, to out lightly, it was, you know, uh, I'd like to give you this uh, because uh, we know that you're grandchildren or you have children. I mean, she knew that to talk about the family and they may enjoy this and we appreciate the time, we know how busy you are. Well, that's reciprocation. They're more likely to remember. It's a small thing, uh, but an important thing. Authority works in two ways. One is we have authority. Uh, we have expert power um, in the area that we're knowledgeable about. And people do tend to look to us um, for expertise in the areas that we're charged with. I mean, we're seen as a, a competent. Well, authority can also mean getting somebody else to speak for you. In other words, somebody who has more authority. I was involved with a coalition once where we actually had a police chief volunteer. We were quite shocked, but it made eminent good sense. He volunteered to speak on behalf of literacy to politicians because he said their studies in their field show that literacy is the single most important thing that reduces crime. And the best thing we could do is providing books and reading materials for children and young people and for adults who didn't have access to them. Well, that was certainly more powerful than somebody from the public library saying, you know, we're here for literacy and making an inspirational or a rational approach to it. The third, and this is the most important for politicians, is a commitment and consistency. In other words, I don't want to be seen as making a decision that's inconsistent with my values whether those are ideological or um, otherwise. I want to make sure that um, I'm going to be consistent over time and that if I make a commitment, I actually keep it. So needless to say, commitments made in public are more often kept than those that are made in private. Um, and commitments can begin small. Uh, the other example here is those of you who are involved in fundraising. Uh, if you can get somebody to make a commitment of even a few dollars to start with, they're more likely to contribute more later because it's consistent with decisions they've made previously and it's consistent with their values. Okay? And that's why when you make a small donation somewhere, you find you're never taken off the list because they know in most cases you're going to come through um, over and over again. The fourth is a scarcity. The less it's available, the more we want it. Of course, in our field, this has to be tempered with um, somebody wanting the service in the first place and wanting more of it, uh, even if it's uh, scarce. Now, why do we have such difficulty with this? Because we often do trade on this. We're the only people who, whatever, therefore you should fund us, and they don't, and we can't understand why. Well, the trouble is that we need to determine what actually is unique about what we're doing. What is unique about what we're doing, and is that valued? And I'll come back to some propositions from some studies about how we can position ourselves as unique um, and valued. Um, and fortunately, a scarcity as a criterion does not apply if the service is free. And, and of course, uh, that tends to be our mantra. So the question then becomes, how do we present this free service as being of benefit and financial value to the user? 
Um, and that's a different way of thinking about it. How do we present what we're doing, not as free, but of a defined financial benefit to the user? How much are they going to save? How much is this going to help them, uh, is the application of the scarcity criterion. The uh, next is liking, and that is that the more we actually like someone, the more we're likely to say yes to them. So that, of course, involves relationships. There has to be relationships with people. And if we know you, and if we like you, we're more likely to say yes than if we don't know you, and frankly, don't care for you either. Um, now, this needs to be genuine. There have actually been studies to show that if somebody smiles and it's seen as genuine, they're more likely to respond favorably to you than if you smile and it's not seen as genuine. Um, and so there is a, a definite uh, basis here for a relationship and uh, being known. And probably the most uh, powerful uh, in a number of arenas, like municipalities and universities, is social proof. What are others who have positions similar to mine doing? I don't want to be the outlier here, either before or ahead. Tell me what others are doing. What are they doing at other universities? What are they doing at other municipalities? And the interesting thing is that, of course, just as we have associations, every group of city managers, heads of HR, heads of parks and recreation, municipal councillors, they have their own associations and they hear what's going on. So if there's a proposition before them, they're going to inquire as to what happens in other communities from that perspective. Um, I, I can tell you that I have seen people apply these very methodically and be incredibly successful. Um, a public library I know in an urban area where the downtown area uh, was uh, really uh, falling apart. They started to call it Plywood Village because so many um, windows had been boarded up boarded up, um, the director of the library started out to engage a very powerful and connected board who had relationships with politicians. They looked at how they could make a difference to the community, not for the betterment of the library, but for the community. And they came up with a proposal, they consulted widely, and they came up with a proposal um, to actually revive downtown by building a new library in an abandoned uh, Walmart store downtown and use it as leverage to draw people downtown and in fact uh, they start to drive 5,000 people a day who hadn't been there uh, previously and within a year restaurants were going up because people were coming into the downtown. Uh, they expanded their vision to a post-secondary post campus downtown and an abandoned office building was turned into dormitories and um, that library for the last 10 years has been the only uh, public service in that community that's got budget increases every single year. Well, they're known, they're liked, they're committed to the community. Um, all of those things are consistent with community values, with the politicians' values, um, and uh, uh, they make sure that the politicians are recognized for the difference they're making uh, to their uh, community. So those are very important. We'll come back to them. Um, these are um, examples um, of the uh, principles that I mentioned to you, and I would highly recommend this a book to you. Um, no matter what job you're in, if you're looking to build influence, it's also a very entertaining book to read. It's called Yes, uh, 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Be Persuasive, and it's not a popular, um, this is how I did it. It's all based on research and very humorous, humorous studies um, that uh, really make you realize why you're inclined to leave a bigger gratuity in some restaurants and not others, why you're more likely to hang up your towels in some hotels and not others, and a number of studies that are, are very useful and interesting to look at. And one of the things that they found is that we have to be careful that we frame the issue so it's understandable and, and important to the people we're working with, not simply in our own context. We also know that if we're looking to get additional funding and you're providing choices, make sure that there's at least one choice that's more expensive than the one that you prefer uh, because then the people making the decision don't feel they've gone for the Cadillac model. That makes a difference. Uh, if you give reasons, if you say because and then reasons, you're more likely uh, to get support as well. So general research in all areas um, suggests that those principles are important. Uh, a colleague of mine who actually works in uh, water uh, conservation uh, informed me of work that was done in um, their field in advocacy and what makes a difference. And 
they aren't into the little stories that we come up with, and I'm not suggesting that those aren't important because it is qualitative research uh, often, but they actually have developed mathematical models to determine what advocacy efforts work and why. And the single most important thing they found is that the change you're looking for has to be congruent with community values. Community values as interpreted by the community's representatives. In other words, their elected officials or uh, those who are in City Hall who are representing their officials. So their um, issues are, first of all, um, is this an issue as the environment they're looking at? Is this an issue in the general environment? Um, do we have the capacity to address it? Um, what is the cost going to be and can we absorb that or do we need additional funding to do it? Is there actually political support for this change that we're looking for? and uh, is it congruent with um, uh, community values. So it tends to reinforce uh, what we're um, looking at here. Similarly, a doctoral study that was done on nonprofit advocacy found that there were um, two significant stages. The first is, are we actually going to engage in this advocacy? Uh, in other words, what's the political cost going to be uh, to us? Um, and secondly, what strategies are we going to use? And uh, uh, some of the strategies are similar to the ones that we talked about. It's interesting that, and this study found that um, whether or not-for-profit groups engage in advocacy tends to be determined by whether or not they feel they have political allies to start with. If they don't, they tend not to engage. And secondly, it's interesting that the more support that an organization has, the less likely it is to engage in advocacy, when in fact the more support it has is when it should be starting building those relationships and influence uh, to kind of uh, protect them a little bit. Well, what do we know about politicians specifically? We know that politicians, of the examples I gave earlier, actually respond um, best, if you will, or more favorably, when there's a coalition, uh, especially when it's a network of groups and individuals. And it has to be consistent with their personal values and beliefs and measures of their own um, ideology, their political ideology. And they have to have a belief that if they make this policy change or they fund it, the outcome will be as it was proposed. In other words, they believe that the outcome, if you say we're going to improve um, student achievement by uh, getting funding for homework centers, well, they have to believe that's actually going to happen. Um, and so there is that rationality to it as well. Their motivation is um, one of three things or all of them. The first is satisfying constituents. In other words, I want to be reelected, um, so that's important. Um, gaining influence, um, either with community groups, these coalition groups uh, that have come forward, and making good policy. I mean, people are there because they want to make a good policy. It's just that we may not believe it's the policy that we're looking for. So the whole notion of commitment and consistency and values comes through in, in working with uh, politicians uh, specifically. Well, what are the issues? Again, then, going back to repositioning our particular position, um, the OCLC study found that uh, we would do uh, better and more successfully if we stop focusing on information and stop, start focusing on libraries as transforming people's lives. In other words, how is the information used and how does it make things better? Um, it may very well be that we have all these databases for health information, but how does it actually make me feel? How does it help me with my own health condition? Um, what is the benefit to me? Um, Looking at um, libraries as a critical piece of infrastructure, whether in a school, a university, um, a law firm, uh, a municipality, rather than an institution. In other words, we're not funding this building. We're funding a critical piece of our infrastructure that's necessary for the quality of experiences that people have uh, when they live and work in this community. We also need to position ourselves in this, as a necessity, not a nice thing that marginalized and older people use and those with young children. You know, it's something that's critical to the community. Um, it's all very well to focus on the um, past, but it's not really going to take us anywhere. Um, we know that uh, older politicians tend to favor libraries uh, when they have little fond memories of using it as a child or they have grandchildren, but the grandchildren is a more powerful influencer because it's focused on the future uh, rather than the past. And we need to also look at what is the return on investment. Uh, 
we're past the stage of the public good and altruism for the community as a whole. What actually is the benefit to individuals? Uh, what's the critical piece, the unique piece, that this infrastructure um, offers uh, uh, to us? Well, you would think that these are all important things and we're all committed and passionate and want to do well and influence the outcome and have better policy and more financial support and so on. So why are we not involved as advocates? Well, individually, these are the most uh, common reasons. We tend to lack a plan. We don't think it's our job, it's somebody else's. Um, we also tend to confuse talking with influencing. Um, and I would suggest that this is one of the problems we have in this state, in particular in California, uh, and we have uh, students in 46 states and maybe the problem elsewhere uh, too. But we tend to have people go out to advocate for us on legislative days because they volunteered. Uh, they aren't trained in what to say, they don't know about influence, they don't know how to appeal. We, have people, we encourage people to go to their uh, local representative's office and talk about the importance of libraries. We, don't, uh, uh, we may give them talking points, but we know that we suffer from this um, culture of victimization and most of the talk is about how I am important my hours have been cut back, therefore I am unable to do these things that I should be doing, and it doesn't reflect any of the research principles for building influence or making change. Uh, we think that if we um, do something for one day out of the year, uh, that somehow it's going to make a difference. Now how can we possibly think that when it's all about relationships? It's all about uh, commitment and consistency on my part. It's all about um, making sure that the issue is framed in a way that's going to make a difference for my constituents um, and a good policy for me. So it's very um, hard. We also aren't very strategic about who are the opinion leaders and who should we be focusing our resources on rather than this great spray and pray approach uh, that we tend to use. So individuals tend to fall into these categories. Well, what about libraries as institutions? Uh, Research on uh, high-impact not-for-profits um, actually uh, think that advocacy is very important. They think that their uh, roles and functions are so critical, uh, they actually fund advocacy efforts. They actually train people. I was interested, uh, you may have seen uh, the story as well recently, I didn't know this position existed, but in one of the boroughs of uh, New York, um, one of the senior staff members was actually elected to the um, a borough council, so they're quite pleased with that. Well, what was his position? Uh, he, they actually followed the rules for a high-impact not-for-profit organization. They had an assistant director whose job was to make sure that there were friends groups at every branch and they were trained in effective advocacy and how to build relationships with their local counselors and so on. Well, that's an organization that's actually said this is so important uh, that we should make sure that we actually uh, fund this. These studies also tell us that advocacy is more likely in larger organizations rather than smaller, more likely in older organizations, interestingly enough, uh, more likely where there's government funding, um, but still only to 30 to 50 percent of not-for-profits devote time and money to advocacy. Uh, and that means training stakeholders, finding partners in the community, and maintaining uh, relationships with the media. And of course, uh, anyone um, funding a service wants to make sure that uh, the outcome is going to be as it was presented, and there are different ways of doing this, both qualitatively through the stories and uh, through um, quantitative measure, the statistics, the um, impact that we have on uh, different things um, um, in the community, and both are important. What does not work, of course, Well, to look at um, planning, um, I mentioned at the outset that in many ways um, advocacy is marketing, but marketing an issue. And I think that if you consider what I've said so far and look at the steps in, in marketing, you'll see that that's really true. The, um, you know, when you start uh, marketing an issue, you really want to know what your objective is. And it should be very clear and it should be very measurable. 
Uh, you need to know who, the, who are the target groups, who are the critical people who can actually help you to achieve your objective. It is not everyone in the community, whether an academic community or a, a community at large. Uh, usually when you actually are thoughtful about it and discuss it and think about it, it's very few people that you have to influence. And then what do we know about them? Where do they meet? Who are they? Uh, what's important to them? Um, certainly if we're looking at local politicians, we'd know who's on their staff, we would know what their issues were, uh, what the commitments they made during the campaign. We'd have done that to research just as we would with a group of teenagers who are trying to get to use um, our library in terms of understanding them and how we might engage with them. And then what's the communication tool we're going to use? The communication tool is after we've done the research, what we tend to do is do the communication to for tool first. We develop a brochure. Uh, we do a presentation, and then we decide who we can sell this to. Well, that is an advocacy. It's knowing about them, respecting them, and determining what the best communication tool might be. The best communication tool might be sitting down in a face-to-face 10-minute meeting. A best communication tool might be a one-page uh, report. It depends on the group or individual that we're working with. And then making sure that we evaluate. Not evaluate whether or not we produce the brochure, but whether the objective uh, was achieved. Um, uh, that's the critical uh, piece. Some of the work by Malcolm um, Gladwell suggests that there are other steps uh, here and that we can have um, a, a effect on changes if we're ready and we have a plan and we actually understand context, as I mentioned, the individual, the organization of the issue. And he suggested, and I think this is important, that there are three different types of people involved in making change. The connectors, those are the people who build relationships, who can put you in touch with people. The mavens, that tends to be us. We have the expertise. We don't necessarily have the connections. We don't necessarily have the ability to connect agendas, to find ways to present things uh, that the salespeople would, would have. And that 150 people using those three um, types of backgrounds uh, can really um, make a difference if you um, are actually strategic about it. And of course, the stickiness factor, um, the Heath brothers wrote the, the book on ideas that stick and what they refer to as the mavens are the culture of, or the, um, not the culture, the, um, the difficulty, the curse, the curse of knowledge, that when you have knowledge, you find it very difficult to present ideas simply in ways that are understandable to others and that are in their language. We just know too much and uh, want to make sure and say all those things. We also know that um, we can concentrate uh, resources on a few key people, just as the other research said, who are the opinion leaders, uh, building relationships with them. We know that our intuition is often wrong, uh, so we know we need to test things. We know that about believing our users are our strongest supporters when the evidence suggests that that indeed is not the case. Uh, and we know that there are uh, people who come on board and we need to track them and make a difference as to uh, where we're going and who we're doing it with. So what do we know? It's all about relationships. We know that for sure. We also know that it's about the approaches that we use and having partnerships and connecting agendas become uh, pretty critical. In our field, we tend to confuse congeniality uh, with collegiality, um, and they aren't the same. Uh, that somebody likes you is important, but it isn't necessarily what's going to make the difference unless you actually um, ask them. We know that there's a big difference between cooperation and collaboration and developing partnerships that make a difference where uh, the benefit is going to accrue over time, not necessarily equally in the first project we undertake. We know that advocacy is critical in terms of building influence um, as a planned, deliberate, sustained effort to develop understanding and support incrementally over time. So in terms of that research, to remember all of that, I would suggest that we need to be focused, highly focused, in terms of who we build relationships with, those networks, um, the approaches that we use, taking into account the research on building influence and advocacy. We need to be flexible. We need to be at the table so we actually show up, we listen, we have something to contribute, but we're flexible about the outcome. 
We also need to be friendly in the sense of developing relationships with people uh, so we have connections. We can pick up the phone um, and talk to people. And we need to be fast. Uh, and unfortunately, um, when you um, point that out to people in terms of preparing, it isn't something that they like to hear. I had a call a couple of weeks ago from a community where they were having some significant cuts and, you know, what can we do? I said, well, you should have made this call five years ago and we didn't have problems, you know, and built the, the underpinnings, the foundation for this, rather than now when you're in the middle of a crisis and it looks like you're just whining. It's very hard. Um, obviously, there are some things that can be done, but this really needs to be done over time. Um, and we need to be uh, fast about this. And, of course, it has to be fun. It can't be seen as just a chore. So where are we then? Well, there's no one right answer. The situations and context vary. What works well in some communities won't work in another. What works well with one elected board won't work with another. What works in one um, corporate uh, environment uh, won't work in another. But we do know that um, the evidence is that building influence and advocacy has to be a part of our corporate culture, whether it's a public library or uh, a special library or an academic library. We need to provide support and training for people um, so that they understand. Um, and we understand the people who work with us, the people who are on our boards, the people in our friends groups, what their connections are, um, what they know, um, that they're aligned with our particular issues and priorities and not going off on a, a tangent. Um, and that we are actually uh, making sure that our story is known. And we also need more action-based research projects around um, advocacy and building influence. What we tend to hear is what people did uh, when it worked. We don't tend to hear so much what they did when it didn't work. And in neither case do we tend to have a very critical um, dissection of the efforts and what clearly made a difference and what didn't, what worked well and what didn't work well. And those kinds of research projects are very important if we're going to learn from our experiences um, and move forward. So I started out talking about um, building influence. Um, it would be uh, one reason why I don't think some of our current efforts like legislative days are all that important. I think that um, uh, they're only important if they're put into a, a larger context. Um, I think for many people it's what they feel their advocacy effort is for the year. Um, I suspect, I've spoken to more than a hundred uh, politicians and their staffs both locally and at the state and national level and I think that uh, the only reason legislative days work is if we didn't do it people would wonder why. Uh, so it really doesn't have any net benefit, but it protects against a net uh, weakness, um, if you will. Um, but other groups are much more strategic. Um, the Car Dealers Association actually have um, an annual call for nomination for advocates. And they have two in every congress congressional jurisdiction. And they train them in the issues and they have them build relationships with the staff of the congressional representative and so on. And they uh, turn over a third of them um, every year. And they have this powerful network of people that they've trained, they've brought in, they've built relationships. And we're, we're just very naive if we think we can send out a blast email saying, please visit your local congressional office and tell them whatever story you dream up uh, if you happen to get in the door. I mean, it's just very naive. And we're the people who you know, undertake a lot of this research and uh, present it. And it, it takes a much more concerted effort if we're going to make a difference. But we can make a difference. Thank you.